Welcome to episode 53 of Bally Sports Miami Mic'd Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And today's episode is going to be a little bit different than the format that you're traditionally used to. It's going to be a lot more of me than you're used to. Decided here at the 80-game mark of the Miami Marlins season that this was the right time to do a little assessing of my own and also answer some Twitter questions that you guys sent in. So really excited to do that. But yeah, being here at the 80-game mark of this Miami Marlins season, they're sitting at 39-41 and after a couple of really tremendous games with the Angels in which they split. Uh, Another interview with a Miami Marlins scheduled for next week here on Miami Mic'd Up. So again, figured this might be a good time to do an episode solo and address a few things about this season at about the halfway point. So I hope you all have had a very joyful week, and I'm going to go ahead and get right into this episode. All right, so before I go ahead and start answering some of the questions that you guys had on Twitter and Instagram, I did want to just take a second to appreciate what the last couple of days were like at Lone Depot Park. Uh, For those of you who were there, you know how special it was. For those of you who were not, I just want to share sort of what it felt like to watch such greatness. And and for those of you who are are lost on what I'm talking about here, um, the last two nights respectively... On Tuesday night, you had Sandy Alcantara throwing for the Miami Marlins and dominating the Angels. On Wednesday night, you had Shohei Otani throwing for the Los Angeles Angels and dominating for them. And and realistically, like there's a chance that those two games, those back-to-back days, those two performances might be one of the most special two-day windows of talent on display like in in Marlins history, like if you've been around since the beginning, I cannot imagine there's been a lot of stretches of, of seeing guys of this caliber on back-to-back days. I mean, it, it really can't be understated, right? We had the guy who was the 2021 AL MVP, potentially the 2022 AL MVP, and or 2022 AL Cy Young, and also a potential and hopefully, I believe, will be the 2022 National League Cy Young Award winner in Sandy Alcantara. Oh, and also Mike Trout was there. Uh, poor Mike Trout, so overshadowed by all of this. But I want to start with Sandy and and just just how incredible it's been to watch this stretch that he's been on. As a lot of you know, it's now, I believe, 11 straight starts of seven innings or more from Sandy Alcantara. And, and he was on the podcast last week. If you listen to the interview, well, let me start here. If you didn't listen to the interview Stop right now and go back and listen to that. Um, I highly recommend it. He was tremendous, um, and I had such a great time getting to speak with him, and that was right after uh, his most recent complete game against St. Louis on Wednesday. He had thrown eight great innings. They were down 3-2. to two. The Marlins hit a home run, gave him an opportunity for the win. They won in comeback fashion, and I was just... I was so unbelievably impressed, not just with what he had to say in that podcast the morning after, but also the obvious confidence that he has, right? Like he's someone now who you no longer question, will Sandy be great? The question now is how great will Sandy be? And that's putting him in that sort of upper echelon of starters that, that you don't see all that often. The the Jacob DeGroms, the Max Scherzers, the, the Clayton Kershaws, the Garrett Coles for a stretch, and and really beyond that. Like he's 
He's doing things that that we have not seen from pitchers in a long time. He already has gone deeper into games more times this season. I, I believe he already has more games where he's thrown eight innings than anyone did in all of 2021. And we're only sitting here at the beginning of July. That, st- that stat might be slightly off. But, but still, you understand the premise. He has been so dominant. Again, it was eight innings, two hits, no runs, no walks, and 10 strikeouts. And... It might really be time for us to start thinking of him as potentially the greatest pitcher in Marlins history, a franchise that, albeit young and albeit, you know, not a ton, I mean, two World Series, but not a, a ton of, you know, deep postseason runs other than that, obviously, uh, a franchise with a ton of great pitching, like in its history. Um, and the first name that obviously comes to, to mind is the late Jose Fernandez. But you have Josh Beckett and Josh Johnson, who actually had a stretch pretty similar to this one at one point in his career. You go back earlier to the guys like, you know, Al Leiter and Kevin Brown and Levon Hernandez. And, but at, at this point, Sandy Alcantara is doing things that it, it, it's almost impossible to process just how dominant he is and just how good he is on the mound. And it's really the way that he's carrying the team, right? Like, he has turned it on in a stretch where the Marlins were desperate in desperate need of wins when he was pitching. Um, he got to pitch on what was the back end of, of a winning streak here. But before that, in his 10 starts where he had gone seven innings or more, the Marlins had lost eight of the 10 games. They were two and eight in the games heading into his starts. He needed to stop skids for the Marlins. And this is a guy who's now... Nine and three, leading the innings, uh, leading the league rather in innings pitched, and you know wins and losses aren't really a valuable stat at this point in Major League Baseball for most starting pitchers, but they are for Sandy because he's someone who goes so deep into the game that that win and loss really is indicative of how great he's been in any individual game. And I, I mentioned it to him on the show last week, but the confidence that he has around the zone in challenging hitters is unmatched in the league right now. And it's been so cool to see that, particularly with his level of accuracy. Because it's not just that he's throwing 100 miles an hour. It's not just that he's throwing change-ups at 95 miles an hour. It's not that he's just trying to hit a part of the zone. At this point, he's taking 100 miles an hour and hitting a specific spot all the time with what feels like 95% of his pitches. And the mistakes that he makes are the only opportunities anyone has a shot against him. He said it himself, if you don't get a hit against him in the first time through the order, you're done. Uh, So he should start the All-Star game. Really great to see Jeff Passan of ESPN advocating for it uh, on Twitter a couple days ago. Uh, He's the best pitcher in the National League. In my view, he's the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. Uh, And he should be considered not only for the Cy Young this year, but seriously, he should be right now. If anybody's having NL MVP conversations... He leads Major League Baseball in war. Sandy should be in that conversation. Uh, He's been amazing, and I hope that Marlins fans, like if you're listening to this, tune in for every single one of Sandy's starts. He is must-watch television at this point, so make sure you're doing that. And speaking of must-watch television, Shohei Otani. Uh, I've seen LeBron James play in person. I've seen Steph Curry. I obviously saw Dwayne Wade a ton Seen Shaq. Saw Tom Brady play in the midst of the Patriots 16-0 season. Saw him in person. Saw Barry Bonds in the 2003 playoffs down here against the Marlins. I've never seen a better athlete in my life 
than Shohei Otani and and what he's doing on a baseball field and the show that he put on last night. And I understand that that might sound like a prisoner of the moment conversation, but it's like he's not he's not doing what Babe Ruth did. Like like he's doing what Bo Jackson did. And that it's 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 two different sports in a time where pitching and hitting could not be further apart in terms of what they mean in the sport. When Babe Ruth was a pitcher and then a hitter, baseball was just evolving into what it's become. It was something where everybody did a lot of everything, and I'm sure a number of different guys who were position players also could have been pitchers because, you know, it was just a different game. It, it, it wasn't as precise as it is now. And so you see these guys training their entire lives just to be able to step into the box and, and, and pray to be as good of a hitter as Shohei Otani is. And you see other guys who have spent their entire lives training in a completely different way for a different physical skill set, for a different sport, essentially, to even try to come close to the type of pitcher Shohei Otani is. And I don't know what it was about finally seeing it in person, but the skill that Shohei Otani has is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. Seven innings pitched, two hits, no earned runs, and 10 strikeouts against the Marlins. He went one for four with the two RBI single the other way against a lefty and Trevor Rogers, who, mind you, pitched pretty well. Shohei's the one who helped break it open. Oh, and on top of that, he also had a stolen base. Which meant, of course, first player since RBIs became a stat in 1920 to throw seven innings, strike out 10, drive in two runs, and steal a base. And the movement on his pitches, I mean, he legitimately places fear in folks at the plate. Like, his stuff is like Sandy's stuff. And he's also batting in the heart of the order. It's unbelievable. And the best part might be, and this is the thing that was so cool yesterday, he has fun. Like, if you were watching the broadcast, he's making faces. You know, he's laughing. He's challenging himself. He's poking fun at himself. I know baseball fans are into Shohei Otani, as we saw in the spike in attendance at the game, as I'm sure we've seen in the TV numbers. But I don't know what I need to do right now or what needs to be done across the board to get non-baseball fans as into Shohei Otani as they should be. To to tune in and witness literally not just a like once in a generation athlete. Like once in the history of sports type of athlete. Like there's never been anything like what we're seeing from him. He lives up to the hype and I feel so grateful to have been in the building to witness both Sandy Alcantara continue this historic run for the Marlins in particular, and Shohei Otani continuing to just be literally the greatest athlete a lot of us will ever see. Also, I don't know how it's possible. Poor Angels fans have to handle having truly two of the greatest players, like maybe in the history of baseball, and they seemingly have no way of improving beyond a middle-of-the-road baseball team. It just... It must be absolutely infuriating. Anyway, on to the Q&A. All right, so here on the Q&A, I tried to take uh, as many of the questions as you guys had from Twitter, from Instagram, and sort of combine some of them or really just sort of try to figure out ones that led me to the topics that 
I felt were sort of worth discussing here. So if you sent in a question and I didn't get to it, I apologize for that. And if you sent in a question and I do get to it, well, I apologize for that too, I guess. I'll just keep apologizing. Thanks for sending everything in. Anyway, let's get to this. Uh, the first question uh, I have here is from Eli Sussman of Fish Stripes. Um, if you don't follow Eli, I don't know why you're not following Eli, but it's at real Eli on Twitter. Uh, that's E-L-Y, not E-L-I. Um, and he asked a really interesting question about this Marlins roster. He said, lots of guys currently on the injured list for the Marlins, aside from Jazz, which one do you think will have the biggest impact during the second half of the season? So this answer is sort of going to be uh, twofold here. Um, my answer is Jorge Soler, but I think it's for two different reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is I think that Jorge Soler can be good and have a positive impact on the lineup, and I will get to the reasons why in just a moment. Uh, the other is a bit by default, and when I say default, that's just simply me um, having apprehension about picking any one of the individual pitchers who have been injured here for a while now to be able to come back and have any semblance of like immediate major impact. So whether that's some of the starting pitchers that we could look at, where it's Edward Cabrera or Jesus Lazardo or even Cody Poteet, like do I expect those guys to come back and go really deep into games dominating? Like, no, I, I don't. I would think that even if they came back and were pitching really well, there's going to be a legitimate limit on the impact that they're even allowed to make, right? There's going to be pitch count limits with these guys as they're coming off arm injuries. And I'm thinking specifically here of Lizardo and Cabrera, who, man, I'm kind of a huge fan of both. I mean, Edward Cabrera came up and was doing some really special things in the first couple of starts that he had before he got hurt. And Jesus Lizardo, man, like, he looked so good at the beginning of the season. It's such a shame that he's been out because it would have been really nice to see what he could have done over the span of a full season. I'm still a huge believer in him. This has nothing to do with me thinking that they can't make an impact. It's just more of the limits that might be put on them. Um, same sort of deal with the relief pitchers who could come back, like Anthony Bender and Cole Sulser. Um, and I know there's a number of other guys there as well, but both of those pitchers are 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 really strong, but the Marlins at this point, seemingly at least, have some confidence in the guys that they're putting at the back end of their bullpen. Tanner Scott, Anthony Bass has pitched well uh, later into games. Dylan Floro has actually been pretty good as of late, and you know he was dealing with injuries earlier, so there's a chance that Bender and Sulcer just don't really end up pitching in very high leverage situations. So all of that leads me to say by default, Jorge Soler. Now, on the flip side, I also think that Soler can have a legitimate impact in the order other than maybe Jesus Sanchez, who, you know, seemingly hits homers 500 feet every time he gets a hold of it. Jorge Soler is obviously the most powerful hitter in the Marlins lineup, right? Like adding that power can only make an impact. And and I mean that even more when you have so many guys who now are the type of players who are getting on base really consistently. I, I look at what John Birdie and and Joey Wendell are doing at the top of the lineup. I look at what Garrett Cooper's been doing. By the way, I'll say it here. I mean, Garrett Cooper should probably be an all-star. Like, I know first base is a really loaded position, um, and, and people might sort of scoff at that if they haven't been watching Garrett Cooper every day, but this guy's hitting well over 300. Um, and he has been incredibly steady in the Marlins lineup. So I'll, I'll just say that right there. Um, but putting Jorge Soler behind him uh, can only strike fear 
in opposing pitchers, right? Having to game plan for a guy with that level of power, I know, you know, he's basically hitting just over the Mendoza line this season, but we saw that stretch in May where he hit nine home runs, right? And if he could do something like that in August, albeit probably in limited playing time with a full roster, right? Like, there's no reason Jorge Soler should or would play every single day when you see John Birdie needing to be in that lineup every day. And yes, I, I, I truly believe that. To me, Jazz Chisholm also, when he's back, should be just about an everyday player. Like him and Birdie both should be everyday players. Joey Wendell should be nearly an everyday player. You start to go down the list, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're left at some tough decisions. Um, but Jorge Soler, when in the lineup, makes a huge impact for Miami, and Traditionally, his entire career has been a great second-half player. Uh, There's no reason for me to believe that that should change all that much. A lot of the time, you know, give a guy a week, let him hit one home run, and it's sort of like a guy who hits a a free throw and all of a sudden can start scoring. Like, let him hit one home run, and he could get hot. And so to me, when you're looking at a season here, a team that's right around 500 that's going to need every win they can get, Sort of like how Adam Duvall basically won six games by himself last year for the Marlins because it was, oh, he just hit multiple bombs. Jorge Soler is that type of guy. And I think that we could see it from him at some point in the second half. Second set of questions comes from Francesco Guanillo on Instagram. Uh, The first one is actually Miami Heat related here, so I'll take it. Uh, What's your take on P.J. Tucker leaving the Heat after showing he belonged in Miami and being a fan favorite? Um, first of all, good for PJ getting his bag. I'm always going to be excited for guys, you know, who, who get to go sign big contracts and, you know, make more money for their family. Like that's always a good thing. Um, but I'm incredibly sad to see PJ Tucker gone. Um, he's one of definitely one of my favorite one year heat players ever. Um, but, but with what he did with this team and, and how high on the list of favorite heat teams ever this one goes, I mean, PJ is one of those guys who's who's always going to be beloved in Heat fans' hearts. Um, I think the team will miss him. Obviously, he does a, a ton of things, both offensively in terms of grunt work, but also defensively in guarding. God, I mean, he guarded Joel Embiid and Trey Young in the playoffs, right? Like, he can do a lot of things that are going to be hard to replicate, but if I trust any organization to figure it out, obviously, that's the Heat. Um, This does give me a chance to sort of go through the offseason so far, which is mostly, hey, let's run it back other than P.J. Tucker. Um, The Heat re-signed Victor Oladipo officially as of a few minutes ago. Uh, They re-signed Dwayne Dedman. They re-signed Caleb Martin. So it looks like this team is going to look relatively similar at the moment. Do I believe that they're done? No, I don't. Um, I believe that the Heat will do something to address that power forward situation. Um, I do think that a lot of this is dependent on what ultimately becomes the decision with Kevin Durant. Do the Nets say, we're going to go ahead and head into training camp with all of this going on? Does another team step up and just offer a haul that the Heat can't possibly provide or 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 rather don't want to provide? Because that's another element of this. There are trade packages for Kevin Durant that the Heat can probably make happen involving other teams that would ship literally everybody but Jimmy out of here. It's a question of whether or not the Heat would want to do that. And you as a Heat fan, you should really think about whether or not you would want the Heat to do that. Um, But to me, I think that's what these things hinge on. The Heat are always big game hunting, whale hunting, as Pat Riley likes to put it, and all of us on Heat Twitter like to put it. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what ultimately happens with that. But if the Heat are essentially running it back, I do still expect them to make some sort of 
tweak to be able to address that position. Maybe a trade for a player like John Collins, maybe like Harrison Barnes, um, someone to step in and play that power forward position. Um, maybe that's Jay Crowder. Once again, another guy who, you know, <laughs> played 20 games in the regular season and then helped the Heat uh, get to the finals in the 2020 bubble. So would be good to see him back in a Heat uniform as well. And the second question from Francesco actually sort of overlaps with what I was just talking about with Jorge Soler and John Birdie and all these other guys. But he asked, you know, Jazz will be back soon. Um, what basically what, what's your opinion on how to balance playing time with Birdie and Soler and Jazz and everyone that's in this Marlins lineup? And, and, and to me, I will tell you this. I think it is really important to have Jazz and Joey Wendell and honestly, John Birdie in the Marlins lineup just about every single day. I think from there, what you're doing with your DH, what you're doing with your corner outfielders, um, that's the thing that you have to figure out. And and realistically, maybe something that is a bit of a solution here ultimately becomes a little less playing time for another one of your young players in, in Jesus Sanchez. And that John Birdie becomes a center field option for you. And that he starts playing a lot more center field against lefties. Um, could they continue to platoon guys like Wendell and Jazz against lefties? Sure. Do I think that's the right idea? No. Um, I think that those guys should be in the lineup, again, just about every single day. And you make adjustments from there. But to have two guys on the left side and Miguel Rojas and Brian Anderson, who both are damn near gold glove caliber players at their position, and to have to figure out how to then balance with having Jazz at second base and Joey Wendell as another infielder. Having Jorge Soler and Avisael Garcia as corner outfielders. Garcia's at least starting to hit a little bit here. Has had a couple of big home runs. Soler coming back, right? Jesus Sanchez in center. You, you got a lot of options now if you're Don Mattingly to mix and match. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I'm, I think that this Marlins lineup is only going to get better from here once these guys get back into the lineup. So this is all, these are all good problems to have. Third question comes courtesy of at Ram underscore sports. And the only reason I'm answering this one is because I have seen a lot of different versions of this question. I'm, in fact, going to ask it in a slightly different way. Um, but the, the the question is essentially, do the Marlins bench Jacob Stallings at some point soon? Um, no. No, they don't. Uh, as long as Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez continue to enjoy throwing to Jacob Stallings and continue to succeed while throwing to Jacob Stallings, a great defensive catcher, I don't really care what his offensive numbers say. And I completely understand. Like, I I get everyone who will come at me with every single number that suggests, like, hey, it would help the team. But it, it wouldn't if it throws off the rhythm of Sandy Alcantara or Pablo Lopez whatsoever. Like, it's just, it's not even worth having the conversation from there. And if he's a safety blanket for them, then I want him to continue to be that safety blanket for him. It's why he was brought here. Jacob Stallings was not brought here for his bat. He was brought here for his glove and for the way he can call games. And if he and Mel Stottlemyre and Sandy Alcantara are working in sync together well, that should continue. Now, should Nick Fortes get his opportunity to continue to catch Braxton Garrett and Dan Castano? Absolutely, like he should continue to get to play, but to make this a a full takeover would not be the wise decision in in, in my view. 
Question from Joel A. Perez on Twitter. Are the Marlins buyers or sellers at the deadline? And if we are buying, relief pitching comes to mind as the biggest need. What else? So, um, this is a, a obviously loaded question. Um, I don't think the Marlins know whether or not they're buyers or sellers at the deadline. I think the next couple of weeks really will indicate things. Um, I'm someone who believes that if the Marlins are within relative striking distance, if they're in the same position that they're in right now, three games back of the wild card as they approach the trade deadline, I would like the Marlins to be buyers. I think the Marlins would like to be buyers. Um, and I'm someone who even, and maybe this is like an unpopular take when you're you're dealing with a team that is still technically in some semblance of a rebuild mode, but like, go win, you know? <laughs> If you have the opportunity to go win, go acquire players that that give you the opportunity to win. And if you can get to the playoffs, anything can happen, especially when you have the best pitcher in baseball and a pretty damn good number two in Pablo Lopez. Short series exist, and you have the best pitcher in baseball in Sandy Alcantara. And when you have that, and you have a bunch of guys in your lineup, like Jorge Soler, like Jazz Chisholm Jr., that on any given night can go win you a game themselves, there's no reason not to try to get to the show. Go get to the postseason. So to me, if there's any excuse to be a buyer, I would be, and I actually think that the Marlins will be. Now, what does buy mean? I don't think you shell out a top five or ten prospect of yours for a rental for this season. But I do think it's worth giving up a top 20 prospect to maybe go get a piece that could help you, whether that's a center fielder, um, whether that's a relief pitcher, whatever the Marlins decide to address, I don't think it's the end of the world if they give up a decent prospect to go get a player that can help them this season and potentially beyond. Um, I've talked already about how the Marlins roster is sort of loaded at a bunch of different positions, and I don't think there's actually a ton of moves that they would need to make. The obvious glaring one is, look, they struggle defensively in center field. Jesus Sanchez is not a pure center fielder. He has made mistakes. Their outfield defense is not great. And so if there's a move that could be made to go get themselves a center fielder at the deadline, if it's one that's tied up, you know, locked up for a long time and is a really good player, man, all right, give up a bunch. Go get them. Grab that player. Help have that player help you get to the postseason. We saw it happen with Starling Marte, right? Like, and that was a different type of trade. But we saw it happen. The Marlins can make things happen. And and I would be a buyer if I were them at the deadline, particularly if it's someone somewhat close. Because look, anyone listening to this knows it would feel really dang good for the fan base if this team made the playoffs again, two out of three years and this time in a 162-game season. So again, yes, I, I would like it if the Marlins were buyers, if, if there's any realistic shot of competing for that wild card. Question here from an old buddy of mine, actually, Mike Halpert. Uh, what's a Miami sports moment you hope to see live someday? Explain the significance of what that moment would mean. Um, man, it, it's hard because... You know, I'm really such a fan of all these teams. Like, I've grown to, I've even, truly, I've grown to love postseason hockey so much that I'm sitting here like, I want to see a Stanley Cup victory. Um, 
I think ultimately, as, as much as I would love to see a Heat finals happen in person, um, and as much as I have always obviously cared about that team and enjoy covering them, uh, I think a Marlins World Series in person, just because baseball has always been my sport, you know, I, I, I watched the 2003 commemorative World Series DVD until we like wore it out. I think about Juan Pierre talking to the camera and, and, and rolling balls down the third baseline at Yankee Stadium before game one, like all the time. I talk about it more than any other human on the planet, more likely than not. So when I think about um, having gone to postseason games that year, but not getting to go see the World Series in person against the Yankees, um, the idea of a Marlins World Series and getting to, to see it in person and potentially like be on the field post game seeing what would happen there being that clubhouse champagne all of it as a professional like i can't imagine there'd be a more impactful moment and the final question in this q a for today uh comes from austin mida i hope i pronounced your your name right there ben i apologize if i didn't um it's at m-a-i-d-a 904 on twitter He said, Jeremy, I'm a senior multimedia journalism student at the University of North Florida. I want to work in the sports media field, and I'm curious to hear how you got your start, what kind of internships you did, what led you to Bally, and any suggestions you might have. Thanks, man. Well, thank you, Austin. Uh, Thank you for caring to know what I have to say here. Um, Sports media is weird, man. Like, I, I have uh, not a lot to say other than sports media is weird. Um, I love that you want to work in it. And I think that if, if you're passionate about sports and you're passionate about storytelling, um, this is the thing to do. Like, I've always loved both of those things. And I love my job. Like, I, I feel incredibly lucky to, to do what it is that I do for a living. And the fact that, you know, I got to start this podcast by telling you guys about... Um, you know, witnessing what I think are two of the greatest baseball players I'll probably ever see on back-to-back days. And I got like to do it for work is just, it's amazing. Um, and so for me, how I got my start. Um, so I, I went to UCF as a lot of, you know, go Knights charge on. And I studied broadcast journalism there or, you know, whatever my track was, but the, the goal was broadcast journalism. Um, and basically, my my first ever internship was as a, actually, ironically, it was as a baseball play-by-play announcer uh, for the Florida Collegiate Summer League. And that was just, you know, one of those summer wood bat leagues. And it was me in the booth by myself. So I was play-by-play and color. And I was doing, I mean, as you guys are listening right now, I've been talking for like a half hour. I was doing four hour long uh, broadcasts or, you know, three and a half hour long broadcasts for probably, you know, 15 people, all of which were the parents of the players who were just missing their kids during the summer and wanting to know what was going on. But man, that was an absolute blast. Like I absolutely loved being in the booth and describing what was going on during the game and telling stories of, you know, whatever conversations I had had with players either before the game or, you know, it's sort of being able to tell parents, hey, yes, uh, you know, Josh DeBacker just doubled down the line. And by the way, uh, don't worry, mom, he did do his laundry this morning. I know you were concerned. Like that was the type of stuff that, that, that we were getting to do. Um, and it was so much fun. And then I basically spent the next couple of years 
um, getting different internships, working hard at UCF. Um, I had an internship with ESPN's Around the Horn and the incredible people over there. And I mean, obviously that had a huge impact on me. They taught me just more than I can possibly explain. And then I came back to UCF and, and put those skills to practice. But what I will tell you from here is I did all of those things. I felt really good about the student-run TV show that I had produced and, and hosted at UCF called Hitting the Field. Obviously, I just mentioned the internships that I had. And when I graduated, I did not have a job. I, I moved home. Like I was lucky enough to have the support from my parents that I could just move home and, and figure it out. And I went a few months unemployed because this is a really tough business to get into. So what I would say is, is you have to love it because you're, you're going to have to put up with some, some failure um, before there's any level of success. And even when there is success, there's failure wrapped within it uh, for sure. And so after I, I graduated, the job I ultimately got was as a producer at, at WSBN at Channel 7 here in Miami and spent what was supposed to be you know, hey, stick around for six months before you go somewhere else. It turned into three years because number one, I was lucky to enjoy the people who I worked with. But number two, I wanted to find the right path for me. And that would be sort of what I would say is the last piece of advice that I'll give within this um, because there's only so much I can give and I'm not actually that deep into all of this. But find people who want to support you and Figure out what it is that, that you're passionate about, the things that you want from your job, the things that you want from your life, and try to make all of those sync together, um, which can, can be really difficult. It can be really difficult to see professional opportunities that might be a step in the right direction and turn them down because you know, hey, I don't think that thing is actually going to make me happy. Um, I had to do that a couple of different times. And I also had to face rejection from things that I thought were going to be the big break or the big step or or whatever that might be. And you're gonna you have to deal with both. Um, but ultimately, you can end up in the right place. And I'm so lucky because, <laughs> God, I I feel so lucky that I have right. Um, what led me to Bali was, I guess I can probably say this. I I've. I applied for a job and didn't get it the year before. Um, and then I kept pestering the folks at Bally. Hey, 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 hey. I really want to do this and this and this and this and this. And ultimately got a meeting with the right person um, right after I had moved out here to Fort Lauderdale. Sat down with them. Pitched them this idea right here for Miami Miked Up. And sort of the rest is history. I got hired in, in December 2020, January 2021. And have been so lucky to have the support of everybody um, with this company to be able to, you know, host and produce this podcast and, and do a whole bunch of different things on our digital side. So um, again, my biggest suggestion would just be find the things within sports media that you believe you're most passionate about and relentlessly pursue them. Reach out to people. Don't be afraid to network. That's like the biggest part of this entire industry is just networking it's who you know in, in so many ways. Um, and I'm so lucky to have had people teach me that along the way and, and be there as the people to know. Um, but yeah, that would be my greatest advice. All right, everybody. Well, that was me rambling for about 35 minutes. So uh, I hope 
any of you got something out of that um this was fun for me um and and maybe we'll do something like this again in the future at some point with a q a uh again should have another member of the miami marlins here on the podcast next week and uh, i hope you all enjoy this marlin series against the new york mets and feel free to reach out on twitter at jeremy Taché. um yeah everybody see you soon Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places.